19th century Jewry was besieged by unprecedented, hitherto unseen threats to its continuity. The century saw the rise of various movements that were drawing Jews away from Torah. You have socialism, of course, with Marx in 1848 writing his Communist Manifesto. You have, of course, the reform movement uh, that really departed away from Torah and Halacha. You have the Haskalah, the Jewish Haskalah, the Enlightenment. Uh, and eventually, of course, at the end of the century, you have Zionism, which many Jews saw as a replacement for traditional Jewry. And that's on one hand, you have these movements. On the other hand, you have the possibility for the first time in Jewish history that the circumstances were there that it was possible for the nation to adopt such attitudes. Previously, they were never welcomed into the greater world. And now, thanks to the emancipation and all the relaxing of the hostility towards them all over Europe, the greater world, with all its tantalizing opportunities, were opened before them to participate. And this trend of Jews abandoning Torah, it quickly gained traction, it made inroads in the Jewish world, and it changed the face of the nation. So assimilation in the 19th century was rampant, intermarriage was widespread and tolerated for the first time, wholesale repudiation of Torah and mitzvot, they became the new norm, and even voluntary apostasy, conversion to Christianity, happened at alarming rates. You could safely say, if we were to survey the middle of the 19th century, the dream of the Jewish destiny of a Jewish people with fidelity to Torah, that was facing existential threats. Now, nowhere was this situation more dire than in Germany, the birthplace of reform. Reform began the 19th century as an upstart movement, as a scrappy movement promising the nation to reduce Judaism into a form that would no longer hinder their acceptance into greater German society. But by mid-century, reform became the dominant, the entrenched movement and Germany, and or the Orthodox, which a few decades prior was the only game in town, it was the only institutionalized form of Judaism, was rapidly diminishing in number, in influence, and in vitality. Even within the quote-unquote Orthodox world, many of the Jews were passionately observing a rote form of a habitual Judaism. Uh, The zest, the joy, the delight, the meaning of Torah was swiftly becoming more and more rare. In the words of our subject, Germany had, in the middle of the 19th century, reverse Muranos. Muranos, back to the Spanish Inquisition time, these were Jews who were externally Gentile, but internally, they were Jewish. In our community, in Germany in the 19th century, there are Jews that are externally Jewish, but internally, their Judaism has no meaning to them. They're internally not Jewish. Even the Jews who were observing the Torah, who maintained commitment to mitzvos, they suffered 
from these ravages plaguing the nation. This was a big problem. And it was a big problem without really an easy solution. In Hungary, for example, these movements were halted before they gained a foothold. Under the staunch and visionary leadership of the Hassam Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, Moshe Schreiber, he adopted a policy of rigidity by choice. Under the uh, motto, Chadash Asur Minat Torah, anything new is prohibited by Torah, anything innovative is anathema. If there's any hint of innovation, of deviation, of changing tradition, it was swiftly stamped out. Even good things, good ideas, doesn't matter. If it's new, if it's not the way we've been doing, if it's not the custom, it's out. That was the policy in Hungary. And via this absolutist approach, all these movements, Haskalah and Reform, they, didn't, they weren't able to get a beachhead in Hungary, and thus their influence was neutralized there. In Germany, by mid-century, that approach was totally untenable. If someone were to promulgate that approach, it would fall on deaf ears. Uh, by that time, there was a different reality in the ground. Most German Jews had capitulated to a very radical form of reform, and the notion of having this blanket ban on modernity would be futile. And a new approach for combating the threats facing the nation had to be devised. The old structure of Judaism, of Jewish life, was torn down, and a new one had to be built. And as had happened numerous times in Jewish history, a great, innovative genius of a leader arose who adapted Torah to the ethos of the time and created a new paradigm, a new, as they say in German, Weltanschauung, a new way of interacting with the world that would stand as a bulwark against assimilation, but specifically was tailored to the unique character of the people and of the time. This individual, his name is Rabbi Shamshon Rafal Hirsch, or Samson Rafal Hirsch, and his philosophy that he that, that he promulgated were couched in the words of the Mishnah in Perkei Avos, in Chapters of the Fathers, where the Mishnah tells us, Yafet Torah im mishkachat avon. It's good, it's beautiful to marry Torah with derech eretz, with the way of the world. It's good to study Torah and to be involved in the greater world because toiling in both of them will make you forget sin. That's what the Mishnah says. He cut out a little slice of the middle, Torah im derecheretz, Torah together with the way of the world, balancing, even synthesizing Torah with modernity, uncompromising on Torah, uncompromising on halacha, while embracing the greater world. This was his insight and you can make a good case that the vast majority of Torah-observant Jews and Torah-observant communities in the world are guided by the Hershian ideology of Torah im Derech 
Now, Rabbi Shamshon Rafal Hirsch was born in 1808 in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, incidentally, his name is Shamshon, and his father's name is Raphael. So really, he is Shamshon Ben, the son of Rafal Hirsch. Somehow the Ben, the son of that, disappeared, and he became Rabbi Shamshon, or Rav Shamshon Rafal Hirsch. And Hamburg is the birthplace of Rav Hirsch, and arguably the birthplace of reform. Ten years after Rav Hirsch is born, the first reformed temple in the world is built in Hamburg in 1818. And that set the pattern. All reformed temples followed this model. They put an organ, they had a mixed choir, mostly the prayers were conducted in German, many of the prayers were deleted. Silent Amidah, for example, was deleted. And in that Hamburg temple, the new reform Sidur was introduced, and that became the liturgical standard for Reformed congregations all over the world, including the United States. So that's where Rav Hirsch is born. He's born at the epicenter of the rise of reform. And he studied under Chacham Isaac Jacob Bernays, who became the rabbi of Hamburg soon afterwards. Uh, he was called Chacham, which is it means a wise person, but it was a term typically uh, relegated to Sephardic communities. In the Ashkenazi community, it was more common for the rabbi to be called rabbi. For whatever reason, Rav Hirsch's rebbe, his teacher, was Chacham Bernays. Some have suggested it was to distinguish himself from the Reform rabbis. Others suggest, perhaps because there were many Sephardic Jews in Hamburg, they would feel more comfortable with a rabbi with that moniker. Now, he, Chacham Bernays, was an innovator in his own right. So he was the first, he was the first Orthodox rabbi in the world to sermonize in German. That was unheard of at the time. Now, today, of course, every sermon in every shul is going to be in the lingua franca of the participants. And every Orthodox shul in America... I don't know about everyone, but most, the rabbi speaks in English. Uh, at the time, for hundreds of years in Germany, certainly, the rabbi spoke in Yiddish. You know, it was the Jewish language. And it was the mark of reform to speak in German. And I guess technically there's nothing wrong with that. And if that's the language that most people know, maybe it's a good idea to utilize. Does it say anywhere in the Torah you can't speak in German? It doesn't. And therefore, he was willing to make compromises, so to speak, to modernity, and that was a very innovative idea. Uh, he also supported uh, secular education for all, which again uh, demonstrated that he was uh, a little bit of a progressive. Uh, and Rehearsh studied under him, and Rehearsh would go on to be a progressive as well, as we'll see. Now, in the late 1820s, uh, Rav Hirsch is already a, uh, a teenager. He's eight, I think he's 19 years old. He goes to study by Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, a famous German rabbi who wrote a famous book in the Talmud called the Aruch Laner, and there he received his rabbinic ordination. Uh, also, as a teenager, he went to study in the University of Bonn, where he studied history and philosophy and physics and various languages, and informally 
he began teaching Jewish students. He encountered a phenomenon of Jews who were rebelling against their tradition, and they were coming to university exposed to ideas that harmed or at least enabled the distancing from, of them from tradition, and he already, at a very young age, he's a teenager, he starts what's going to be his lifelong mission of trying to bring German Jewry back to Torah and to embrace a Torah strongly. Uh, incidentally, with a twist of irony, in Bonn, he briefly befriended a future antagonist, Abraham Geiger, who is going to go on to become the head of reform in the 1840s when Rav Hirsch dedicated all his efforts to combat them. Uh, They were friends in university for a brief time, and apparently they studied Talmud together, specifically the Talmud tractate of Zavachim, a little historical nugget there. At 22, Rav Hirsch left university and joined the rabbinate, and became the rabbi of Oldenburg. And as was the case with all the rabbis in Germany, this was a government position. And we'll see a lot, about, a lot of his story highlights the fact that to be a rabbi, it's an official position uh, that is overseen by the government and that has some implications to, uh, to his story. And he, uh, this was a collection, his first uh, his first position was to preside over a collection of about 10 different communities with uh, several hundred Jews total. Uh, these were smaller communities, more rural Jews who were less influenced by these new tides sweeping over German Jewry, but were also scattered. And this was what we would call a starter position. He was often unpaid. And that's why, the reason why is because his paycheck came from the government, because he was a government employee. And the coffers from which the government paid the rabbi came from a tax that was levied on the constituents of said rabbi. For whatever reason, maybe they weren't able to, maybe they didn't want to, the people of Oldenburg didn't fill the coffers sufficiently, and often Rav Hirsch was unpaid. But additionally, uh, he was given a certain degree of freedom in time because it was a position that didn't really mandate that he do much. You know, it was a several hundred Jews scattered in 10 different communities, only uh, several dozen in each community. How many times does the rabbi need to, uh, how, how many questions does he get in a given day? Rav Hirsch had a lot of time in his hands. And he used it to deepen his Torah knowledge, and he systematically and intensively studied Torah. But additionally, it enabled him to write. And he became, over his lifetime, a very voluminous writer. And all his writing essentially boils down to one goal, to show the meaning and the relevance of Judaism, of Torah, of tradition, in a modern world, and thereby to halt the great lie that reform was opining, that you have to choose, that it's either Torah, it's either tradition, or it's modernity. You can only have one. 
And that, of course, was their argument to get Jews to come aboard. Join this Judaism, which is a much more watered-down version of, of Judaism, and you could embrace the world. But you need to go away from Torah in order to have modernity. Comes along Rav Hirsch, and he shows, no, it's very possible to create a confluence of Torah and modernity and to show how they each indeed can help each other. The Torah will help you with modernity, and perhaps even the modernity will help you with your Torah. And through his writing, he began to try to halt the progress of reform, which was catching on like wildfire in Germany. So the first book he wrote was the second book that he published, and it was called Chorave. More about that in a second. But he writes this book, and he has the manuscript, and he goes to peddle it to Jewish publishing houses. And they tell him there's no market in Germany for Jewish books and Torah of this variety. And the only person who's willing to look at him is a non-Jewish publisher who agrees to print this book, provided that Rav Hirsch would first publish a smaller volume, a shorter work, to gauge how much interest such a book of such a genre would garner. So the second book that he wrote, which is the first book that he published, is one of the great classics that that he produced. It's called The 19 Letters, alternatively called Igeres Tzafon in Hebrew, which Rav Hirsch published in 1836 under a pseudonym Ben Uziel. This revolutionary work was intended for young people, and it is essentially a dialogue between two young Jews. On one hand, you have Binyamin. Binyamin is an intellectual who, though originally observant, as a result of secular studies and various social contacts, begun, has begun to doubt the relevance of traditional Judaism in the modern era. And he is having this dialogue and a series of letters to his childhood friend, Naphtali, who is a young rabbi. In these series of letters, they discuss all aspects of Jewish philosophy, what's the purpose of life, what's the purpose of mitzvos. And in the first letter, in the opening letter, Binyamin writes what is indeed a thought that many young German Jews had at the time. And that is that, well, Judaism and Torah and tradition doesn't lead to happiness. It's, it leads to misery. It leads to persecution. It's all these prohibitions against pleasure. Why, why, do, why bother? Why do I need it? And Reverse, of course, speaking as Naftali, responds in, in elegant German, outlining the foundations of Torah, uh, the talking about Jewish history, uh, the Jewish destiny, what is the role of mitzvos, and all the while taking barbs at reform. Uh, he's explaining what mitzvos are, what Torah is in a rational, logical manner that makes us understand not only what we ought to do, but why we ought to do it. So, for example, in letter number 13, the question of what is the meaning behind 
the 39 prohibitions of work on Shabbos is. Does God really care if I flip a light on Shabbos or I light, I light a fire or I build? Like, what is the moral value, so to speak, of that? That's a good question. And her first response by telling him that Shabbos really underscores what the relationship of man and man's creator is. God created the world, but gave us the keys to this world. And we could create. And we could be creative. And we could forget God. And everything that we do, there's the risk. There's a grave risk of humanity that we could think we're the creators and forget about God. Well, how do you ameliorate that? You have one day a week that any creative work, any work that shows perhaps ostensibly that man is the boss, is suspended. Thus, any creative work is prohibited. And that's the one day you're supposed to tie your hands back, so to speak, and ponder and ruminate on the fact that God is the creator, not me. And this is a classic example of what he was trying to do. He was trying to give meaning and infuse passion and, and, and inspiration in mitzvos. And of course, this is a valuable lesson today as much as it is then. And it's a valuable lesson not only for people who are not Torah observant or, or who are running away from Torah observance, but even people who are Torah observant. The Torah doesn't want us to be automatons. The Almighty could have programmed androids to do Torah and to put on tefillin. Is that what he wants? No. And Rav Hirsch, he was cognizant that in his community, there were Jews who were observant to Torah and they were withholding from all the work on Shabbos, but they were reverse Moranos. They had no meaning in it. Inside, they were dead. And he's trying to infuse passion in those Jews too. Soon afterwards, it became known that Rav Hirsch is the author of this book, and it sparked keen interest in, in German Jewry for anything Rav Hirsch was writing. And it began to sell very well, and two years later, his original work, Chorev, was published. And this uh, Chorev, another classic, is a comprehensive book of Jewish law and philosophy. It takes every mitzvah of the 613, and it details the philosophical underpinnings of the mitzvah. Again, the theme, what we do, but also why we do it. What does it do for me? How do I benefit? Why is mitzvahs and why ought mitzvahs be indispensable for me? In the 1870s, Rabbi Israel Salanter, another great personality from the 19th century, he met Rav Hirsch and he implored him to take these books, these foundational books that he wrote in his 20s and have it translated into all the other languages, especially into Russian. Because at that time, Haskalah was making its way into uh, Eastern Europe and Rav Yisrael Salanter felt that this kind of ideas that were so successful in Germany could maybe stave off the brunt of the uh, threat, so to speak, to Torah and tradition in Russia. Rav Hirsch stayed in Oldenburg for 11 years, and uh, after one year, he got married, 
When he left, 10 years later, he already had five children. Ultimately, he's going to have 10 children, five boys and five girls. In 1841, he becomes the chief rabbi of Emden. This is a much larger community. But by that time, he's already stirred the pot, so to speak, with the local, with the reform all over Germany. And there's such opposition to his appointment at his inauguration, they had to have 50 armed guards to protect him, not from non-Jewish threats, but from his Jewish enemies. In Emden, Rav Hirsch, he founded a secondary school, again with a curriculum featuring both Jewish studies and secular studies. And for the first time, he employed his motto, his catchphrase, Torah, Torah with, together with, the way of the world. Concurrently, in the mid-1840s, reform was escalating and accelerating its rejections of Torah. So in 1844 in Brunswick, in 1845, and 1846, various conferences, they officially declare their positions, permitting intermarriage between Jews and any monotheistic religion, formally abolishing mitzvos, and even toying in 1845 with banning brismila, circumcision, the most important, or at least the first mitzvah uh, of the Torah for Jews. Geiger, who was the head of reform at the time, he called brismila, circumcision, a barbaric bloodletting ritual. In 1847... Rav Hirsch moved to Moravia, to Nicholsburg, and he became the rabbi of the entire Moravia with a Jewish constituency of 50,000 Jews. And he also served as a member of parliament in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In Moravia, Rav Hirsch was constricted. He was caught between, on one hand, the reform who absolutely hated him. On the other hand, there was a deeply traditional orthodox element who felt that he was too modern. And therefore, everything he tried to do, all all of his innovations, he wanted to establish a yeshiva to train rabbis, and all his ordinances that he wanted to enact were thwarted. So in 1851, he makes a puzzling career choice to leave Moravia, to leave a community of 50,000 constituents of 50,000 members and to go accept the position of rabbi of the Orthodox community in Frankfurt. This is a tremendously steep demotion. This Orthodox community, they were a separatist community. They had seceded from the general Jewish public two years prior, so 1849, 11 Jews, they were frustrated with the way the community at large was going, and they obtained governmental recognition to be considered their own independent religious entity. And when Rev. Hirsch becomes rabbi, there's maybe 20 families, maybe 100 people, and they don't even have a shul building. And you think about a rabbi at the peak of his powers— who's already authored numerous books or bestsellers, and he's a rabbi and there's 50,000 people who are under his helm, and he leaves them to go to a couple of dozen uh, Jews in Frankfurt. In 
in Frankfurt, he ushers in a revolution. Uh, he establishes a community that will become the model for Jewish communities ever since. So the first things first, he builds a mikvah. Next, he builds a shul. Then he establishes three schools. And then he works on all the other things that a community needs. And in his shul, it became a forerunner of modern shuls today. To join, you have to join the community. They voted on issues, which is a novel idea at the time. Uh, members had to be married according to halacha. So members did not need to be personally observant of Torah, but they had to be at least halachically married to their spouses. They had to have a circumcision. Non-Shomer Shabbos people can become members, but not officers. And within 20 years, the way he structured the community and the efforts, the intensive efforts that he put into building the community, the community exploded in growth. Jews from all over joined. And from 100 people, there's almost 2,000 people, uh, even though they only comprise a minute 15% of all Frankfurt Jewry. Now, Rav Hirsch would remain in Frankfurt for the rest of his life, and it is there that his philosophy of Torah im derech really took off. He taught, again, Torah and the way of the world are not in opposition. Torah im derech Torah with the way of the world. If someone's Torah is strong enough, then their relationship with the world will complement their Torah not threaten it. So he was willing to accede to modernity in all matters that were not in conflict with halacha. So for example, what about modern dress? How do you dress? Could you dress like a sophisticated aristocratic German or do you have to dress like a ghetto Jew? Reverse will tell you, dress like a sophisticated aristocratic German. Nothing wrong with that. Where does it say in the Torah? It's not in the laws. It's not a halacha. It's fine. Is a Jew allowed to shave? The ghetto Jews wouldn't feel comfortable walking into university with a straggly beard and curly pais. Or first would say, it's okay, no problem. What about going to university? In, in Hungary, going to university was anathema. How could you go and study secular education? Says her first, no, that's fine. Torah im derecheretz, that's okay. He himself, he wore modern garb. He would walk with his wife in public, which was something that European rabbis didn't do that. He spoke a beautiful German. He lectured in German. He wrote in German. He translated the Torah in German. He taught Tanakh, not just Talmud and the the Torah, which was innovative at the time. And all this that he's doing is undercutting the core claim of reform. It is possible to embrace the world and not abandon Torah. And he would publicly debate them and publicly ridicule them and combat them unyieldingly as a masterful orator with incisive articles and essays, again saying modernization is great, provided it doesn't compromise in halacha. So he established these schools, including formalized education for girls, a high school for girls, which was revolutionary at the time. It didn't exist in any other Torah community. He brings it in. He introduces secular education to the curriculum. Again, likewise, unheard of in the rest of the Torah-observant world. And Refresh himself was personally committed to these schools. He would go door-to-door in Frankfurt 
and he would fundraise, and he tried to recruit students as well to his school. And in 1853, two years after he arrives, the school opens with an enrollment of 84 children, boys and girls. 20 year, 30 years later, there's 600 students. And it continued to flourish until it was closed by the Nazis in the middle of the 1930s. And Refresh himself was personally involved in these schools. I have two twitch, sto- twitch stories that show not only uh, his involvement, but also his pedagogical skill. There was once a student who received a gift, a ball. And the student went to Rav Hirsch to hear about, what do you think about this new toy that I have? And Rav Hirsch took the ball and looked at it very carefully. And he examined it from every side and said, yes, this is an amazing toy. So that's not much of a story, right? Well, what, what, what really happened? But this shows that, A, the child is comfortable to go to the greatest rabbi of the entire country and go show him his toy. And Rav Hirsch looks at it and thinks about it and talks to the child on his level and telling him, yes, this is a great toy. Another amazing story that my grandfather said over, my grandfather was born in Germany in 1914, incidentally, on the same day as Rav Hirsch was born, 106 years prior. And my grandfather always had a certain affinity for Rav Hirsch. And he would tell over that he once he met an old woman who had studied in one of Rav Hirsch's schools. And she told him the story that there was once a, a girl who was misbehaving. And she was sent to the principal's office. Go talk to Rav Hirsch. He opens up the cabinet and he pulls out a doll and he gives it to the daughter, to, to the girl. And he says, here's a doll, but promise me that you'll start behaving. And of course the girl did, which shows again, a certain cleverness, a certain skill in, uh, in teaching, in being a, a pedagogue uh, on top of everything else. Another innovative and maybe controversial method that Rav Hirsch used uh, was with regards to the community. Uh, The community was governed uh, by a single Jewish body. And he lobbied, arguing uh, that it's not possible to have one community with, with Reform and Orthodox Jews together. You have the Reform Jews and they're shaking their bells on Shabbos and they have the origin, the shul, and to us... To the Orthodox, says Rav Hirsch, well, that's unthinkable. And eventually, in 1876, the German parliament passes a law which allows Jews and Jewish communities to secede from their religious community and form their own. And at the time, you have almost universally across, or I guess nationally across Germany, you have uh, the reform dominating all these local communities. And you have individual groups, a, a minion here, a minion there, of Torah-observant Jews throughout every city. Rav Hirsch believed, and this was not uh, accepted by all of his contemporaries, that there's a, a strategy of isolation that would help the Orthodox community be shielded from the harmful elements of reform and assimilation, and he championed the vote 
for separation. And he would even tell everyone, it's a mitzvah for you to start your own community. Now, others contended that uh, formal seceding of the Orthodox community from the Reform is a bad idea. Well, what about Jewish unity? How can we give up on our brethren? And those are good points. And there were great rabbis who disagreed and said the German Jews should not form their own little communities, official recognized governmental communities. Uh, but regardless, ultimately, there were two Orthodox communities in Frankfurt, one of them that chose to not abandon the greater Jewish community, and one Rav Hirsch's community that became known as Adas Yeshurun. Uh, so this is a, you know, maybe we could argue about the merits of, of either side, but this does show that Rav Hirsch was, uh, he thought deeply about how to have a community under such conditions flourish. And uh, maybe it's not for us to try to pass judgment on which approach is a better approach, uh, but it's also important to understand it in context. This is, was a very different world in the 1870s in Germany than anything that we know of. But more than any other means, Rav Hirsch employed his potent pen to protect and shield his community and to ward off reform. So he founded and edited a monthly magazine called Yeshurun, and he would write most of the articles with masterful, elegant German and with clear, cogent argumentation Rav Hirsch would present Torah imbued with relevance, imbued with meaning and beauty. With passion, with elegance, he responded and rebuffed all those who challenged the veracity or the relevance of Torah. So, for example, in vogue at the time was Bible criticism to question the divinity, the historicity of Torah. He lambasted that. Uh, he battled and ridiculed Heinrich Greitz, uh, a contemporary who wrote books on Jewish history, which went against Torah tradition, he attacked him. He advocated against Zechariah Frankel, the, his school that he founded, founded in Breslau, which diminished the Jewish tradition. And to all those that claim that it's impossible to synthesize, to have a coexistence of Torah and modernity, Rav Hirsch wrote the following. This is a snippet from what he wrote. It also shows a little bit of his flair for writing. Judaism is not a mere adjunct to life. It comprises all of life. To be a Jew is not a mere part. It is the sum total of our task in life. To be a Jew in synagogue and in the kitchen, in the field and in the warehouse, in the office and the pulpit, as servant and as master, as man and as citizen, with the needle and the engraving tool with the pen and the chisel, that is what it means to be a Jew. An entire life supported by the divine idea and lived and brought to fulfillment according to the divine will. The more the Jew is a Jew, the less aloof he will be from anything that is noble and good, true and upright in art or science, in culture or education. The more joyfully Will he devote himself to all true progress in civilization and culture? He's telling them, essentially, the more of a Jew you are, the better you could actually embrace and connect to the greater world. Provided, that is, 
that he will not only not have to sacrifice his Judaism, but will be able to bring it to more perfect fulfillment. He will ever desire progress, but only in alliance with religion. He will not want to accomplish anything that he cannot accomplish as a Jew. Any step which takes him away from Judaism is not for him a step forward. It is not progress, for he does not wish to accomplish his own will on earth, but labors in the service of God. Rav is making a very compelling argument. Torah Derecheretz. When you have Torah, your Derecheretz will be improved. He's saying that your ability to have progress, it was, it was a hot-button word, a catchphrase, talking about progress. It's the latest today. Well, what's the most progressive idea in the world? The fact that God communicated to us a way to ha- live more perfect lives. That's progressive. To be a Jew allows you to thrive even more in the greater world. And indeed, through his writings, Rav Hirsch was constantly hitting this point again and again. Now, in, in Frankfurt, he also wrote his indispensable commentary on Chumash, published in English as the Pentateuch, with Rav Hirsch's commentary as a comprehensive approach to Torah. Again, he's showing you how the relevance of mitzvos, how each detail of a mitzvah is indispensable to its overarching goal. Also, he wrote commentaries on Tehillim, on Psalms, commentary on the Siddur, on the prayer, among many other books, essays, articles, and treatises. His legacy is hotly debated. Everyone agrees that what he stood for and what he promoted was Torah im derecheretz, Torah with the way of the world. What exactly that means? What's the breakdown of Torah versus derecheretz is a subject of very hot debate. And there has been a degree of revisionist history regarding this point. It's, 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 it's misunderstood. Rav Hirsch never meant to say that Torah and derecheretz are equal. Of course, the primary objective of the Jew's life is Torah. What he's arguing is that Derecheretz does not detract from that, and Torah does not detract from Derecheretz. They work together. The goal is Torah. The goal is the soul. And the way to do that, the method, the process, what enables that, that's Derecheretz. We can't run away from this world. We have to live in this world. We have to embrace this world. We have to make a living. We have to get education. Of course. But that's not the goal. That is the means to the goal. And it's important to note that Rav Hirsch, I, I think we, we also we tend to underestimate how innovative that was at the time. It was, it was a tremendously radical idea. A rabbi coming to tell me to go to university? Uh, that was unheard of at the time. But Rav Hirsch said it and it became the standards that we live today in. But he, he did make some significant concessions. Uh, Germany was home to many great Torah giants over history. Rav Hirsch and Torah der Heretz succeeded in creating legions of Torah-observant Jews, of people that had strict fidelity to mitzvos, to observance, to tradition. However, it did not succeed in developing, in spawning legions of Torah giants. 
The indisputable fact is that Torah and Derech Heretz, it demands a certain compromise in how far Torah could go. Perhaps it was a calculated risk. Everyone seems to agree that Rav Hirsch did what was necessary for the time. And maybe we're still in that time. Who knows? But it's a mistake to say that he would argue that Torah and Derech Heretz are equal, number one, but it's also a mistake to say that this is the recipe for Torah greatness. Because the facts on the ground are that Germany produced only a paltry amount of Torah giants uh, from the 19th and 20th century. It produced a few, but much fewer than all the other communities that didn't adopt this approach. Uh, modern sages have, have said that what Rav Hirsch did was Horaasha. It was an edict for the times, which means that sometimes the circumstances change and that demands a unique perspective, a unique approach. Is it an ideal for all times? Is this the path we, path we choose? Should we tell Rabbi Akiva, go to university? Of course not. Right? If all the options were available to us, we would not choose Torah and Heretz. But in Germany, in the 19th and 20th century, not all options were available to us. And therefore, at that time, that was the decision that was made and even with the decision that was made, the Torah was the primary and the Derech the way of the world, it was secondary, it was enabling. Rav Hirsch, when he died in 1888, he was uh, replaced by his son-in-law, Shlomo Zalman Breuer, Rabbi Dr. Solomon Breuer. Uh, when he died in 1926, uh, his son, Rabbi Joseph Breuer, lost the election to replace his father as rabbi of Frankfurt, but he did succeed him as Rosh Yeshiva, as head of the yeshiva in Frankfurt. My grandfather, when he was a teenager, he studied for a year under Rav Breuer in the yeshiva in Frankfurt. During the chaos of Hitler's rise, uh, Rav Breuer moved to the United States, and in Washington Heights, a neighborhood in Manhattan, he founded a community with a shul in the same model of Rav Hirsch in Frankfurt with, with, with schools and with the same attitude of integration of Torah and Der Heretz, and it still exists today. We could say about Rav Hirsch that he stood up to the plate and developed a foundation that has paved the way for our encounter with the modern world, has forged the path for us today and for the people of his time to be comfortable in the world while still maintaining Torah through his writings, through his community buildings, through his great innovations in education, through his efforts to give us the meaning behind mitzvos, to reignite the joy and the pride Amongst the people, Rav Hirsch is one of the great 
innovative Torah leaders of all time, and he developed a people-specific approach of navigating these great perils that 19th century German Jewry faced. If you have any questions or comments, you could always email me, rabbiwalby at gmail.com.